So it's all here. The story of our time with the Barkov. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has played host to the biggest names and best minds of our day who have helped to tell the story of our times through candid, revealing conversations with the Barkov. This podcast delivers them straight to you. Welcome to With the Barkoff. I'm Mark Updegrove. As a reporter and news anchor, Dan Rather has covered the biggest stories of the last half century, from the civil rights movement in Watergate to 9-11 and COVID-19. His wise commentary on current events have made him a social media phenomenon. The 88-year-old gives us his perspective on the times we're living in compared to those he's covered in the past, Donald Trump and his toxic relationship with the news media, and why he's a Texan by birth and by choice. Well, Dan Rather, welcome. We're delighted to have you here today. Thank you very much. It's good to see you, Mark. Well, you're talking to us from your apartment in New York City during an unprecedented shutdown. What does your life look like right now? Well, I have basically been isolated in my apartment and fully quarantined uh, for most of the time since I believe it's March 5th. I was I had my bags packed and was within minutes leaving for the airport to come to Austin for South by Southwest EDU. That's the education part of it. When the psychological bombshell was dropped that they were canceling the whole affair. From that time on, I've been in my apartment as a safe, a full quarantine for well over a month and isolated before that. But uh, no complaints. You know, I have great gratitude that I don't have the virus. I haven't given it to anybody else, I don't think, and I haven't added to the burden of our healthcare system. So I consider every day a blessing, but I do my work as best I can. I'm not uh, all that technologically uh, adapt with modern equipment. So that's a fond way of saying that my grandson, Martin, has helped me a great deal conquer whatever technological mountains have been declined. I don't, I don't know what we would do without our children at this moment in time, Dan, <laughs> and grandchildren. Uh, you have been covering the news for 70 years. You've been on, a, a, on the beat since uh, uh, you were at the Associated Press here in Texas in 1950. What's the closest thing you've seen to what we're experiencing right now? Is, does anything come close? In my lifetime, there's nothing that comes anywhere close to this. The closest would have been the start up for us, for the Americans, of World War II. In the early stages of World War II, uh, the news was very grim, and it looked like we were destined to lose. The Germans were seemed to have victory after victory. The Japanese were rolling uh, in the far rim of the Pacific. That's the closest I can recall to a time when the country had to say to itself, you know, we better pull ourselves together or we're facing a cataclysmic defeat. But I think the closest in modern American history we've come to this was the now much talked about Spanish flu epidemics of 1918. But although I'm 88 years old, even I was not alive during <laughs> that period. So I can't say that I recall that. But I would say the, the, the beginning and the first months of World War II uh, after the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, it's the closest I can recall in my lifetime. World War II changed us, and probably for the better. 
Do you think we will fundamentally change when we come out of this? Well, first of all, things will not be the same. There will be fundamental change. And because of that, there'll be fundamental changes uh, in healthcare and there'll be fundamental changes in the economy, most of which we can't even foresee. But because there will be dramatic changes, yes, we will change. We will have to change. But as you know, Mark, uh, I'm an optimist by experience and by nature. And my own optimism, together with my experience with the American public, which is very resilient, is that this may be a very long valley. I fear that it will be. But I do believe we'll come out the other end better for the experience. And we have a great chance to be a better society, uh, a better people contributing to a better world. But that's not going to happen just by wishing for it. We're going to have to, as our predecessors in this country, our mothers and fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers did, we're going to have to prove that we're equal to the occasion. And this is a mighty challenge. Do you think, Dan, that we will come out a more united society as a result of this? I do. And part of the reason I think so is because I hope so fervently that that will be the case. But again, I, I do acknowledge this thing's in the balance. Right. It depends on what we do. But I do think we'll come out of it a, a more united country. I certainly hope and pray so. You've tweeted recently of the administration's plan on COVID-19. When it comes to the meat of President Trump's pandemic plans, I've seen more on a bleached, picked-over stray cattle carcass left for months in the Texas sun. While we've seen President Trump's poll numbers go down, he still has an approval rating of 43%, according to Gallup. How do you explain the strength that President Trump has among his base? And it, it seems to endure, regardless of what the president does in the office. Well, I agree. Uh, first of all, uh, let's acknowledge that his poll numbers, generally speaking, were going up some before the coronavirus uh, came into play. However, for the length and breadth of his presence so far, his approval ratings have been well below the norm for any presidency, Republican or Democratic, as a general rule. So we want to have some perspective of that. I think that President Trump is, he has a canny ability to recognize what rhetoric, what symbols will touch the rawest nerves that divide us. For example, immigration, race, these things are base feelings. And he does have, a, if you want to call it genius, he has a political touch mm. of being to ex able to exploit that. And so I think the explanation of the 42, 44% general approval rating that he has, uh, not about the coronavirus, but generally in his presidency, has to do with his ability uh, to exploit uh, fears in the country. But the most important thing right now, Mark, if I may say so, about his, his leadership or lack of leadership is to recognize that it, it has been so inefficient, so disorganized, so chaotic, so even dysfunctional to be almost jaw-dropping. Mm. The, the media landscape, Dan, is far more fragmented than when you started in this business. But I, I wonder, on balance, has the press covered this administration responsibly, in your opinion? I do think overall in the main, yes. While always noting that nobody does it perfectly and we've made some mistakes, I think the answer to your question is yes. And particularly, I think the public at large, I, I hope and 
believe that they will recognize that among the ways that the press has done a very good job of covering Trump is it, there's been a revival uh, to some extent of really deep digging investigative reporting mm. and during the Trump administration, all to the good. And I, don't, I hate to single out any, you know, any particular thing, but both the New York Times and the Washington Post have done some brilliant reporting, investigative reporting, as have uh, some of the on-air networks. And I think the press should be given credit for that. At the same time, you know, we collectively, the press, we've made our mistakes. We've not been perfect during the, the Trump time. But uh, I, I hate to say it's a golden era of American journalism, mm. but it's been a pretty good era these last two or three years. Of the presidents that you've covered, Dan, who was who the best crisis manager in the White House in uh, that, that you have observed? Well, that's a very good question because it, you can make a case for a number of presidents as you know as crisis managers. Lyndon Johnson was pretty good. That's not to say his presidency was perfect. It wasn't. There'll always be Vietnam. And for example, in the immediate wake of the assassination of President Kennedy keeping in mind that that was an emotional earthquake for the country. You know, a solid hammer to the heart, not only for each individual American, but for the country as a whole. Sure. And, and to lead a peaceful and effective transfer of power at the very top uh, in the manner in which President Johnson did, I've often thought he didn't get as much credit for that as he probably deserved. So he managed that crisis uh, uh, very well. The crisis of the Vietnam War, of course, he failed miserably with that. But in the immediate week, wake of the Kennedy assassination, he handled that uh, extremely well. I thought that President Obama handled the economic situation he inherited, the very deep recession in 2008. I would consider that a crisis. He had a lot of support, including some bipartisan support, and we should acknowledge that. But uh, he was very good in, in managing that crisis. Dan, is there a, is there a common denominator uh, that you've seen from presidents who effectively handle crises that we can learn from in this moment? Uh, is, is there a, a quality that stands out, a common quality? Absolutely. I, I want to answer that, Mark. But before I forget, I do want to say that uh, President George W. Bush, mm. in the immediate wake of 9-11, handled that, uh, in my opinion, pretty well. The decision to invade Iraq, which happened later, is a whole other story. But in the in the first days and weeks after the attack on 9-11, I would give President George W. Bush some credit. Mm. Now, as to what you know, good leaders in crisis share, first of all, is an ability to be and to convey authenticity, to be authentic and to convey a sense of authenticity. There has to be a high degree of communicable trust between the leadership and the led, particularly during crisis, particularly when the heat is on. And the mark of a good leader is that when things are most difficult, overwhelmingly the people he's trying to lead trust him to tell them the truth. Uh, where leaders so often fail, and I think any reasonable reading of history, again, ancient and modern history is, Leaders ultimately fail when they consistently try to conceal the truth, when they try to put something over on the people they're trying to lead, when they try to, for example, deflect blame for mistakes. Those are some of the hallmarks of, of leaders who lead well in crisis. And I've seen this on the battlefield as well with uh, 
in, in the military, much the same thing applies. That from everything from platoon leaders to theater generals, those who succeed are generally ones who are able to engender trust among mm. those they lead. Mm -hmm. On April 17th, Dad, you, you, tweet, you, you retweeted a Forbes.com article titled, What Do Countries with the Best Coronavirus Responses Have in Common? And they answered their own question with women leaders. And you hashtagged it, not surprised. Why did that not surprise you? Well, because it's been my experience, generally speaking. Glad you picked that out. <laughs> 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 it's definitely, definitely been my experience. That, that women are just generally better during a crisis? Short answer is yes. I know I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but I have to, I'm trying to be honest with you and be authentic. Yes. Uh, I think partly because women have to deal with crises. For example, childbirth. You know, it's a celebration. It's a great life force, but it's also a crisis if you're the person giving birth. I don't know why it is, and maybe I'm wrong, but it has been my experience that overall, in the main and generally speaking, women tend to be at least equal and, and in many cases superior to men. Hmm. You have nearly 3 million followers on Facebook and almost a million followers on Twitter. Has the massive reception you've gotten on social media surprised you? It has surprised me, Mark, to the point that it stunned me. <laughs> uh, that I had no idea. And I, I'm very grateful. My gratitude runs deep to have the response be what it has turned out to be. As I think you and I may have discussed another time in another context, that I was very slow to come around to social media. I really felt that I was born too young for social media. As you know, I'm 88 years old. I like to say I don't even buy green bananas anymore. And <laughs> When social media first came on, I just said, look, it's not for me. But younger members of my staff, a small staff of people I work with, journalists and projects, and they just said, look, it's, it's, not a, it's not an option. If you want to be anywhere relevant, even on the periphery, uh, you have to be on social media. And so I said, well, I'll give it a try. But I wasn't very optimistic. But I am very grateful for the response. I have no idea why the response has been as good as it's been other than possibly, you know, I've been lucky and blessed to live this long. I've been a few places and seen a few things. And what we're trying, what I try to do on social media is give some context and perspective to what's happening, particularly when I can some historical context and perspective. And at least with some of the audience there, there seems to be a desire for that. And that's what, what success we've had is probably due to that as much as anything. You are considered, and rightfully so, one of the best reporters that the press has ever produced. What is the most interesting and compelling story you've covered in your, your long career? Well, first of all, Mark, I, uh, I very much appreciate the kind words about my career. I'm not sure they're justified, but they're very, very much appreciated. Uh, I'm going to try to answer the question, Mark, but uh, I want to answer it in the context that I've been so lucky and blessed as a reporter, I could answer any one of maybe five, six, or seven stories and be satisfied with it. But uh, when I covered not the very early stages, but the fairly early stages of the civil rights movement mm. and covered Dr. Martin Luther King during the period 1962 and 63, this changed me as a person and changed me as a professional. And sometimes when I say, well, what 
what's the biggest story, as an ongoing story and one that reverberated in the years since then, I would say that for mm-hmm. a, a story of, of, of a contained period, of, of short period of time, certainly being in Dallas and covering the assassination of President John Kennedy would be up there. I, I want to go back to Martin Luther King for just one moment, because uh, you saw that great leader up close, Stan, and, and he has risen to mythological proportions. Have we lost sight of any aspect of Martin Luther King through all the mythology around him? Well, yes, I think we have. And mind you, I do believe that Dr. King is, uh, is worthy of the iconic position he's taken in, in history. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very much aware, I was aware at the time of some of his vulnerabilities and had become uh, aware as the years gone by of things we didn't know at the time. He was not perfect. He did not claim to be perfect. Uh, he certainly had his flaws, but I, I do think he's worthy of the iconic. But I think one of the things that sometimes gets overlooked, I was, I'll met, would mention two things. The first is sometimes mentioned, but it only gets passing mentioned, is what a brave person he was. Hmm. That he literally walked moment by moment on the razor's edge of lethal danger. He knew that he could be and probably would be somewhere along the line assassinated. And to, to live with that moment in, moment out, and go ahead anyway takes real courage. Hmm. He had it. That's the first thing. But the second thing, and I do think it's overlooked, is that there's so much emphasis, and understandably so, on what Dr. King was seeking was racial justice, that with that and every bit as important to him was his struggle for economic justice for people of all colors. And to this day, I don't think that gets quite as much attention as it probably should. Right. In your Twitter profile, you describe yourself as Texan by birth and by choice. How has being a Texan shaped who you are? Well, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. I do feel it very strongly that being a Texan has shaped who I am for better and for worse. I do believe, I I think it's true to this day, but it was certainly true of Texans of my generation and the generations that preceded me in Texas. You can't understand Texas or Texans or what being a Texan means without understanding the closeness of Texans to the land. Mm. Uh, One of my earliest memories was my maternal grandmother, Paige, who lived in Bloomington, Texas, which was down to the coast near Victoria. One of my earliest, I must have been probably four or five years old, because I was just barely memory age. Uh, We were outside and she said, you know, Danny, run your hands through the land, the earth, it's black land down in Bloomington. Run, Run your hands through the earth. This is Texas, and this is what you're a part of. Hmm. And that stuck with me. I, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it does to me that you, you ask me what being a Texan. And I also think that part of being Texas and what Texas is meant to be and help form me is Texans past and present, generally speaking, have a great, we have many flaws, and God knows I have flaws. <laughs> but one of our strengths is that we tend to look beyond the far horizon, that it's look way, way ahead, looking for new frontiers, new things to try. And, you know, this was very much a part of my own upbringing, but uh, I confess that I get uh, sort of 
not very eloquent and possibly not even very much understanding trying to explain Texas. Who the hell can explain Texas? <laughs> uh, but I will say, Mark, that when I came to CBS News and began traveling, you know, long flights to Southeast Asia and Dateline's faraway places with strange-sounding names, some of them long forgotten, that it's, there's a struggle within yourself to say, you know, who am I? You're traveling the world, you're, you're going, not answering the sound of gunfire, you're flying all over. And if you aren't careful, you, you lose a, a sense of your center. Mm. And Texas has always given me a sense of my center. Wherever I was, whatever I was doing, good, bad, or indifferent, long travel or short travel, away from home for long periods of time or whatever, I always, in answer to the question, who am I and who I'll become, the answer has always been, I'm a Texas by birth and by choice. That's who I am. That's what I am. Why do Texans have such outsized pride in their state? Do you, do you have any, do you see any, uh, anything behind that? There's a palpable pride that you have, and we can hear it in your voice, Stan, that, that, uh, about being Texan. Why is that? You know, I don't know the answer to that question, Mark. I always like to try to answer a question. I don't know the answer to that question. I think part of it is our, our history. Texas has a, an improbable history. <laughs> uh, having been its own nation is part of that. Knowing that we're the only state that we were our own nation uh, before we became a state, I think part of it is the the myths of Texas are such strong myths. The Alamo, Jim Bowie and the Bowie Knife, Sam Houston, Stephen F. Austin, uh, the, the the mythology of the state, the the iconic characters who help perform it are all part of it. But I think in the end that one of the things about Texans is this sense of, of independence uh, and individual responsibility, which we could spend another podcast talking about how that affects our, the politics of our state past and present. But I think that's an important thing to keep in mind about Texans, for better or for worse. In some ways, many of us Texans are conflicted by it, but there's the the pride in saying, listen, uh, I'm responsible for myself. I want to be self-reliant, strong sense of independence. On the other hand, recognizing that collectively and being part of a society is the only way to get many major things done presents some peculiar conflicts uh, for Texans and increasingly so as we get deeper into the 21st century. Sure. I, I want to end this conversation where I began it, which is to go back to the pandemic that we're all experiencing now. What is the best thing that you will take from this experience, this shelter in place, stay at home, uh, uh, antisocial almost experience that we're all going through? Well, again, Mark, you're a very good interview and a very good question. <laughs> spoken one, from, spoken yeah, from the no. best. <laughs> uh, for me, and I know this to be true of, of many people with whom I'm acquainted going through the same thing, is a sense of the importance of gratitude, humility, and modesty. And understanding that, you know, the world, to say the least, is a very complicated place. And there's so much about it we don't understand, we can't understand the great mysteries of life, that 
you have to look deep within yourself and just recognize that arrogance and conceit leads to so much trouble and destruction. I just find myself repeating to myself sometimes sort of as a litany, gratitude, humility, modesty. Don't forget how important they are. My thanks to the legendary Dan Rather, the Moody Foundation, and St. David's Healthcare, and of course to you for joining us. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Updegrove. See you next time.